Let's open up in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to gather together, to worship you, to hear your word, uh, to fellowship with you and with one another. We pray that you would bless this sermon, that you would give us clarity, Lord, and that uh, you would give us grace and strengthening, and we pray that you would edify us through this. And we thank you for your grace and love, and amen. So today we are continuing our series called the GCF Vision. Uh, the vision, or the GCF vision, is a term that we use a lot, but we haven't had a thorough teaching on in a while, not since Greg was teaching at RCF at Wright State, at least. Uh, so we're doing this series where I try to cons- explain concisely, yet thoroughly, what exactly the GCF vision is. So at the beginning of all these sermons, I always repeat this every time, and that's because I think it's good for us to really have this overview um, well understood. But there's, there's five core things that we believe God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. Uh, the first one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. Number two, being grace-based rather than performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. And again, we're not at all saying that there's no churches that have these things or that do well at these things. But most churches don't have all five of them or do well at all five of them. Even though there's many churches that do well at one or two and other churches that do well in a different one or two. Uh, But we believe that by God's grace, it's his will for uh, the church as a whole to rediscover and restore these things. So today we are continuing a subsection of the series called The Strengths of Reformed Churches. And uh, and next time I speak, we'll finally get to the strengths of charismatic churches. Today is the last part of the strengths of Reformed Churches. And then we'll talk about the synergy, the strengths, and the benefits that you only get by having both of them, by having a church culture that's reformed and charismatic. So um, I I like to describe what I mean by reformed, um, because I would consider reformed to be a church culture, just like I would consider charismatic to be a church culture, and there's... It's easier to describe cultures rather than trying to use one sentence to just list, get list a list of qualities. So there are certain qualities that Reformed churches tend to have. Having an emphasis on the five solas, having a biblical view of predestination and election, holding to covenant theology rather than dispensationalism, and placing a high priority on regularly and thoroughly studying God's word. So today we're going to look at that last one, placing a high priority on regularly and thoroughly studying God's word. So in Reformed churches, there's often a high level of priority placed on really knowing the Bible and on studying not just the Bible, but formal theology in a sense. Uh, And I think that that's a strength. That's a strength that Reformed churches tend to have, and it's something that all churches should seek to have. So why should Bible study and theological study be a priority? Why is it important? Why is it worth making a priority out of? I want to give uh, three reasons for that, three arguments for why you should place a high priority on studying God's word and studying theology. Three. (laughs) That's fair. Yeah, we could probably get to 50. (laughs) 
the first one is that God wants us to be a people of the word. God wants all Christians to be a people of his word. Let's look at Josh uh, verses, chapter 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So from the very beginning of God calling out a people for himself, God has wanted his people to be a people of his word. Let's look at um, John eight thirty one and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. What's the implication of this? Uh, The necessary implication of it, if you look at it through the inverse way, is that if you don't abide in Jesus' word, you are not truly his disciple. That's a big deal. God wants his people to be a people of his word. Let's also look at Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not dwell in you a little, mostly just in the ministers, but if you're not a minister, a little is good enough. Paul wrote this to the whole church. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let's also look at Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 8. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes. Again, God wants his people to be a people who really focus on his word, who really know his word, who meditate on it day and night. And lastly, let's look at Hosea 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from being a priest to me. God is saying this to his people. He's saying, because you have rejected knowledge, because you have rejected my word, I will reject you from representing me to the nations. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. It's a priority to God that God's people place a priority on his word. It's a big deal that we know it, that we study it, that we regularly think about it, it should be a major part of our lives for every Christian. That is God's desire and God's design. So number one, God wants his people to be a people who are about his word. The second reason Bible study and theological study should be a priority for us is because God commands us to love him with all our minds. Let's look at Matthew 22, verse 37. 
And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He didn't, Jesus didn't say, well, you just have to love God with all your emotions, but you know, forget your mind, that's not important. That wasn't Jesus' idea about things. That wasn't God the Father's idea about things. God wants us to love him with all our minds, all our intellectual capabilities. If we don't seek to love God by knowing him deeply on an intellectual level, we're missing out on what he has for us because he wants to bless us with the knowledge of him. He wants our relationship with him to be a close and intimate one and it's not going to be as intimate as it should be if we don't know him well intellectually. I've mentioned this before as an example in other sermons, but if I, knowing a person means more than knowing about them. Nonetheless, if you claim to know someone well and you don't know much about them, you don't know them. If I were to say that I don't know very much about my wife, you would be really concerned about our marriage. And you should be. That would be a problem. Knowing someone is more than knowing about them, but it definitely necessitates knowing about them. The third reason why study of the Bible and study of theology should be a priority to us is because God wants us to think deeply about his word. Let's look at 2 Timothy 2, verses 4 through 7. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. If the hard-working farmer, who ought to have the first um, share of the crops... Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I think this is a principle that we're meant to apply to Scripture in general. What Paul is writing to Timothy here is Scripture. God wants us to think over the Scriptures, and as we think over them, and not apart from our thinking over them, then God gives us understanding of them. God doesn't often, if at all, give people a miraculous amount of understanding of his word without them thinking about his word. God wants us to think deeply about his word. That's what it means to meditate on God's word. Meditate means think deeply about Thinking it through over and over and pressing out all the implications about it. To meditate can be thought of as to to digest something. When you digest something, when your body digests food, it takes it, it breaks it down into smaller pieces, and it, it makes sense of those smaller pieces in some sense. So God wants us to not just read his word, but to think over it and to think deeply about it. This is for every Christian. This is not just for ministers. This is for every Christian. Because God wants every Christian to know him intimately. We are all adopted as sons and daughters. That brings us to the next reason why studying the Bible should be a high priority for us. God designed us to know him. Let's look at John 17, verse 3. 
And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He didn't, when Jesus says eternal life here, he's not talking about mere eternal existence because everyone has eternal existence, whether they know God or not. Everyone who gets created is going to exist forever. So this must be something different than eternal existence. This is eternal life. This is what sets people apart from eternal death. Eternal life is to know God. So God designed us to know him. And I don't have time in the sermon to describe how much God desires that we know him and have intimacy with him. But it's, it's in the scripture and God has a huge amount of desire that we know him intimately. And since God wants us to know him well and know him intimately, it's super important that we know the Bible deeply and that we think over it, that we study it that we study God. All right, the third reason I want to give for why it's important that we know God's word. There are dangers that come with not knowing God's word. And um, there's a bunch of them. I don't have time to list all of them, so I'm only going to list four. The first danger that the church tends to fall into when we get into times where we don't really know God's word very well is drifting from the truth. Let's look at Hebrews 2 verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You know, there's various ways that the church drifts from truth when we start to ignore God's word. Um, Often it leads to a dumbing down of the gospel, which is a big problem today because the church is drifting from or hasn't been focusing on God's word as it should, as she should, and falling for false doctrines. When we don't know God's word as deeply as he wants us to, it's easier to fall for false doctrines. And there's always going to be false doctrines. The next danger that I want to point out that, can, that is amplified by not knowing God's word deeply is the danger of falling into legalism. Let's look at Proverbs 19, verse 2. Enthusiasm without knowledge is no good. Some translations say zeal without knowledge is not good. But when a person has a lot of passion for God, but doesn't know God's word very well, it's very easy for that passion to lead them to unbiblical places. It'll often either lead them to legalism or to licentiousness. Usually, uh, if we're very passionate about God but don't know his word very well, we'll start to just enforce standards that aren't biblical and think everyone should do this, everyone should do that. We should all be doing more all the time, all the time, no matter what, and end up with unbiblical standards. Or on the other end, falling into licentiousness. Um, You know, saying that people don't have to keep God's standards because we need to love Those are places that Christians tend to get led when they have a lot of passion for God but don't know his word very well. So knowing God's word well helps to protect us from both those outcomes. 
Uh, the next danger I want to mention from not go- knowing God's word deeply is falling into sins of ignorance. A sin of ignorance is when you're disobeying one of God's commands and you don't realize that you are. You don't know it. You're not aware of it. And if we don't know God's word very well, we might be sinning in various areas without knowing it. And that's not good. The last one I want to mention, the last danger that comes with not knowing God's word very well, is not being prepared. There's, God's word prepares us for life. There's two specific things I want to think about in regards to that. Trials happen in life. Difficulties happen in life. And knowing God's word well prepares us for trials and difficulties. Because trials and difficulties are often temptation to think God is not being good. Trials and uh, tribulations are often temptations to doubt God. And the more we know his word and understand his word, the more prepared we'll be to see, oh, this is why God would allow this. It turns out God is not always interested in me always being comfortable all the time. Not only that, but knowing God's word helps us to be prepared for sharing the gospel. And not knowing God's word well causes us to not be prepared for sharing the gospel. Opportunities are going to come up for sharing the gospel because God sovereignly orchestrates that they come up. And that's good. But if we don't know his word very well, we'll be less prepared for them. So there are dangers that come with not knowing God's word. We, the church, need to know God's word deeply. It's not enough to know it a mediocre amount. We should care much more than that because it has to do with knowing God, which is the most important thing in your life. So um, we need to want to know God's word, but that's almost kind of a vague statement. So I wanted to make it less vague. So I have a section, four goals that I think would be good for all Christians. This is the fill-in-the-blank part on your uh, handout. We brought back fill-in-the-blanks. We like to switch it up. So I think there's four goals that, in general, all Christians should have. All Christians should try to do these things if they can, which in modern times really probably means all Christians should do these things because we have the Internet. There is no excuse for not learning because you have the internet. So the first goal that I think it's important for all Christians to have, reading the entire Bible multiple times. All Christians should want to read the entire Bible multiple times. So let's break that down into two things, reading the entire Bible and not just part of it and reading it multiple times. Why should Christians read the entire Bible? For one thing, we don't really know God's word if we don't read the whole thing. For some reason, there's a belief in the church in America today that we can know God's word and not read the whole thing. And that belief is a problem. That is not something we should tolerate being in our minds and our hearts. We should shoot that down. Let's look at um, some reasons why that is a problem. First off, the sum of God's word is truth. Let's look at Psalm 119, verse 160. 
The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So what is a sum? A sum is multiple things together. If I have, um, you know, two cups, I have two cups here, a cup of water and a cup of coffee, the sum of my cups is two cups. And if I take one away, I no longer have the sum of my cups. The sum of God's word is truth. And if we're missing part of God's word, we're missing truth. There's two ways that works out. For one thing, because we could have missed something important. And the second one, we uh, are not knowing not having read all of God's word might be leading us to misinterpret his word, to misinterpret the part we have read. So let's, let's get into both of those. The first one, we might have missed something important. How can we even say confidently that we're obedient to God if we've never read the entire Bible? For all we know, there could be commands God's given that we're completely ignoring on a day-to-day basis. You shouldn't have any confidence that you're you know, walking in obedience to God if you haven't read the entire Bible. If you haven't read the entire Bible, there's no way you could know whether or not there's commands you're just completely ignoring. And that should be a problem. That's something we need to take seriously. So the first reason we, might, we don't really know God's word if we haven't read the whole thing is that we might have missed something important. But the second one is that we might be misinterpreting the parts that we have read. So there are plenty of passages that cannot be understood correctly without interpreting them in the light of other passages. Just to give an example, we're going to look at four of them real quick. Let's look at Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The Lord regretted that he had made man. What does that mean? Well, you're you're probably not going to get the right idea of what it means if you don't interpret it in the light of other passages of Scripture. You're probably going to interpret as, oh, God realized he made a mistake. He shouldn't have made man. It didn't work out so well. Let's also look at Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Good, now I have an excuse to hate people. (laughs) But not really but you'd have to read other passages of Scripture to get the correct interpretation for this one. Let's look at Psalm 139, 21 through 22. More on hating people. Do I not hate those who who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So I guess we're supposed to do that, right? See, reading just parts of the scripture without having the rest of scripture to compare it to often leads to misinterpretations. 
These are just a few easy examples, but it's, it's bigger than this. And just to have one last example, let's look at uh, Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So I guess bitterness is an unpardonable sin, right? No. But you want to know that unless you also read other passages of Scripture. God designed Scripture to need to be interpreted in light of Scripture. We won't interpret it correctly if we don't interpret it in comparison, in, by comparing one passage to other passages. God never contradicts himself. So whenever a passage of Scripture seems unclear, we can find clarity on what it means by interpreting it in light of other passages of Scripture. And that's how God meant for us to interpret Scripture. So if we don't become familiar with the whole of Scripture, with the entirety of Scripture, it's easy for us to develop several poor interpretations. And this is a big problem. So those are the, the biggest reasons why it's important that um, you know, we read the entire Bible. We can't just read part of it and say we know the Bible. If I said that I know Star Wars, but I never actually finished watching it, that would be a very silly claim to make. That would be ridiculous. But we American Christians often feel like we still know God's word even though we haven't read all of it, or even if we haven't read all of it. And that is a ridiculous belief. It's wrong, and we need to shoot it down. So... Uh, not only do we need to read the entire Bible, but we should read it multiple times. The reason for that is the Bible is too deep to get everything out of it on your first, second, or third read through it. You'll get a lot out of it on your first, second, and third read through it, but you won't get everything there is to get. So some people are really good at making movies that you can watch them again and again and again and keep getting more out of it while still having understood the movie the first time you saw it. Not a lot of directors are great at that, but there's a few. But God is infinite. And his word, even though we can get a lot out of it and understand the big picture on our first read-through maybe, a person might, they might not. There's always going to be more valuable insights to get out of it that we will only get if we continue to read it. Not just that, but so we've examined how Scripture is interpreted correctly when we interpret in the light of other passages. And that's a good reason why often on a person's second and subsequent read-throughs of the Bible, they'll have more clarity than on their first read-through. Because when you're reading the entire Bible for the first time, you'll read passages you've never read before, but you, there's other passages you've never read before, which you should be comparing them to in order to interpret them correctly. So in order to really get the gold out of it, in order to really get the valuable insights out of it, we should read the Bible multiple times, the entire Bible multiple times. 
the things that you'll get, the insights you'll get out of your latter subsequent read-throughs of the Bible will be worth the time that you spent reading the entire Bible multiple times. We're talking about knowing God. This is the most important thing in our lives. All right, um, we're a bit behind on time, so I'm going to do a bit of a jump in my outline. The second goal that I think all Christians should have, becoming familiar with theological terms, concepts, and perspectives. So before we get into why this is helpful, I want to say you can't get as far with knowing God without benefiting from the progress that others have made. There's only so much that a person can learn in their lifetime. And learning from others allows you to learn what they may have spent years learning, sometimes in as little as an hour or a few hours. And that can, you know, save a person years of time learning things, especially given how much time, uh, you know, multiple saints throughout church history have spent studying the Bible. So because of this, a person who learns on their own and also learns from others, has far more potential for learning in their lifetime than a person who merely learns on their own. It's very helpful to learn from others. So that brings me to my next point within this idea that all Christians should want to become familiar with various theological terms, concepts, and perspectives. So understanding theological terms and concepts helps equip you to learn from others. There are certain books and sermons that have valuable insights in them, very helpful insights, uh, that are difficult to understand unless you're familiar with certain theological terms and concepts. Uh, A basic example, what does Trinity mean? If a person is a very new believer and they don't know what the word Trinity means, they might miss valuable insights from certain sermons and books. But there's a lot more, you know, informal theology uh, terms and concepts than just the Trinity. And they are worth getting to know. I'll use learning programming as an example. Uh, Learning programming is a lot easier, uh, computer programming, when you use books and videos than if you just try to learn completely on your own by messing around on the computer. I I haven't met anyone who's just learned it just by messing around on the computer. But in order to really get good understanding out of programming books, you have to familiarize yourself with the lingo. Because, you know, various areas of study have certain lingo attached to them. And so that equips us to learn from others. As believers, we should want to get to know God deeper, and because we want to get to know God deeper, we should want to know any common terms and concepts discussed in theology or in formalized theology, because they're helpful. The second reason I think it's good for any Christian and every Christian to become familiar with various theological terms, concepts, and perspectives is because we need to question our own assumptions and positions. Becoming familiar with various theological positions allows you to effectively question your own positions and assumptions. We need to question our own positions and assumptions because our own positions and assumptions could be wrong. Everyone thinks they're right, but everyone is wrong about at least something. 
If you knew that you weren't right about something, you'd change your mind. Let's look at a, a few verses uh, that briefly that talk about that. Proverbs uh, fourteen fifteen: The naive believes everything, but the sensible person considers his steps. The sensible person considers the path he's already walking on. Is it the right path? The sensible person considers his position and his assumptions. Let's also look at Proverbs 18, verse 17. The one who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him or until another, come, another one comes and presents a different case. There's also uh, Paul talking about the Bereans. They were more noble-minded and they studied the scriptures to see if these things were so. Considering ideas that others have developed, even if they're contrary to what you believe is right, is helpful even if you don't end up agreeing with them. It's very beneficial. Whether you end up agreeing with their perspectives or not, you will be better off for having considered them. There's three reasons for that, because there's three ways it can play out. The first one, if you find that the other position is correct, you can change your thinking to agree with it. But even if you find that it's incorrect, you've still gained something by thinking through it, and you'll be better equipped to help others see that it's incorrect. Mm -hmm. And there's also the possibility that uh, even if it's overall correct, or overall incorrect, there might still be some important truth in it to glean from it. Because often lies are built on truth. And often, you know, people take things to extremes, and that's how they end up being wrong. A good example of this, um, frankly, I think it might be the idea that God always wants to heal people. That's not true but it might be closer to being true than the alternate idea that God just doesn't heal anymore. Neither of those ideas are true, but they both have some truth in them. The idea that God always wants to heal has the truth in it that God frequently desires to heal. And the, God, the idea that God never heals has the truth in it that it's not always God's will to heal. So getting familiar with various theological perspectives, even if you don't agree with them, thinking through them is profitable. It's good. It will help you to know God. This has helped me a lot. I'm very glad for all the books I've been able to read uh, of people who didn't agree with me. I'm definitely way better off for it. So we are going to try to move quickly. Uh, the third goal I think all Christians should have, getting used to studying the Bible for yourself. So all human learning can be, in some sense, divided into two types of learning, either first-hand learning or second-hand learning. Any learning that you learn from other people is second-hand learning. Uh, any you know, revelation you get directly from God or things you glean from your own experience, that's first-hand learning. So a lot of the learning we're expected to do in life tends to be second-hand learning, but there's some things that you'll only be able to learn from first-hand learning because you just might not meet anyone who happens to be teaching that thing. Not only that, but um, second, 
First-hand learning makes you better at second-hand learning because it helps you develop the skills necessary to evaluate what other people say and to extract the truth from it and to integrate that with your own current views. Remember the Bereans. Paul said they were more noble-minded, but they didn't just take Paul's words, um, oh yeah, this is definitely, this has got to be it. They searched the scriptures for themselves to see whether or not these things were true. We have to get used to studying the Bible for ourselves. We can't just take other people's word for things. I wouldn't be very happy if Jeremiah were, were just content with knowing about me just the things Teresa tells him. If Jeremiah didn't want to actually get to know me for himself, that would break my heart. We all should get used to studying the Bible for ourselves. Uh, And the fourth goal that I think all Christians should have, uh, becoming an ongoing studier and learner. We're never going to hit the point where we know the Bible so well that, you know, it's just not worth studying anymore. That's never going to happen. One of the reasons that won't happen, and we didn't have time to get into this sadly, but reading the Bible provides a certain amount of spiritual nourishment. There's a reason Scripture compares itself to food so often. Scripture gives empowerment, but it's not like you read it once and then you have that nourishment, that empowerment forever. It's closer to eating physical food. You need it one day, and then you need it the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Scripture does provide real and tangible nourishment that, um, that affects how you live your life and what goes on in your heart. But anyways, we don't have, we're running low on time, so I'm going to move, skip a few things. But let's look at Proverbs 19, verse 27. Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. We, we should all get to the point where we're ongoing studiers and learners, where we're always trying to learn more about God, where we're always trying to get to know his word better. We should never give up on it. We should never be content with it. And actually, let's also look at Proverbs 10.14. I really love Proverbs 10.14. Wise people store up knowledge. Think of that as like someone who stores up wealth. $10 here, $10 there, $100 here, $100 there. Wealth isn't built in a day. Wealth is built over time. But wise people store up knowledge and build a wealth of knowledge over time. And we should be seeking to get to know God deeper and deeper and deeper over time, storing up knowledge about him and his word. All right. um, So I wanted to mention something. God's grace is here for us. I want to give a word to anyone who might be feeling condemnation about not having good study habits or having not taken Bible study very seriously. You know, this has been the case for a lot of us. It's okay if you don't have good study habits. It's not okay to keep having bad study habits forever. 
Don't walk away just feeling condemned. God gives grace. It's okay if you don't have good study habits, but it's not okay to keep having bad study habits forever. God's grace is here for you. So I want to look at this idea in a few details. First off, God loves you whether you have good study habits or not. If you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, God loves you whether you have good study habits or not, and that is never going to change. God's love for his children is not at all based on their performance. Nevertheless, we'll be missing out on real blessings if we don't develop good study habits when it comes to studying the Bible and studying theology. Because God wants us to know him deeply, and that is the overall the greatest joy a human can have. It has more potential for joy than any other thing on earth, knowing God deeply. I also want to point out, grace is more than just forgiveness. Grace is also empowerment to do better. Grace is God loving you too much to let you stay where you are. And if you feel like developing good study habits is something that's going to be very difficult for you personally, then remember these three things. Number one, God will be patient with you. God will continue to love and forgive you. And God will gladly give you strength and help if you come to him in prayer. So again, I just want to emphasize the idea, it's okay if you don't have good study habits, but it's not okay to keep having bad study habits forever. God wants us to overcome that. God's grace is here for us. And if you're wondering where you could get started, um, there's three things that I would recommend if, if you don't know where to get started. First off, get a Bible reading plan and have a routine because we should all be reading the entire Bible multiple times. Second off, develop a a study system or a note system, somewhere where you can write down all the insights you get about the scripture and have them all in one place. Somewhere where you can write down notes that help you to study the Bible on your own. And thirdly, uh, develop a list of books uh, to read and a reading routine. So in conclusion, um, we need to have a church culture where we place a high value on studying scripture. It is something God desires for all Christians. This should be a part of every church's culture. And secondly, we need to be a church that places a high value on studying theology. We're talking about knowing God. This is very important. So let's get to the communion meditation. Today's communion meditation is called Come As You Are. So I wanted to spend, I want us to spend some time thinking about how Christ does not require us to clean ourselves up or get our acts together before we come to him. Let's look at Luke 5, verse 32. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God didn't come for the people who had cleaned themselves up for him. We'll see in just a second how that's a ridiculous idea anyways. I kind of like how the NLT puts it, even though the NLT is adding a bit of interpretation to its translation. Luke 5.32 in the NLT says, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners and need to repent. 
God did not come for those who would clean themselves up before him, which is something we could never do anyways. Let's look at Isaiah 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds, all our cleaning ourselves up before God, are like a polluted garment, a filthy rag. We, are, we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Trying to get our act together before God so that he'll give us grace or so that he'll love us or accept us is like saying, wait, I'm going to see the king? Let me put on this dirty diaper first. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. We could never clean ourselves up before God. Any, any attempt to is, as bad, is at best as bad as putting on a filthy excrement-covered rag before going to see the king. It is Christ's unconditional love, his blood shed, that gives us righteousness before God. Let's look at Philippians 3, verse 9. That I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that does not depend on cleaning ourselves up before we come to God. Likewise, no amount of living for God can make us worthy of his love. Living for God is something we do in response to his love, empowered by his love, and because of his love. It's not something we do in order to earn his love, because doing enough to earn his love would be impossible. So come and set your hope on Christ and not on yourself or your good habits or deeds as we come to the table.